At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Support for WABE comes from Capital Good Fund, introducing Georgia Bright Solar Lease Program, a new rooftop solar initiative designed to create pathways to equitable and inclusive solar, sustainability, and monthly savings for Georgians. Learn more at georgiabright.org. W.A.B.E. in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Our series, Speaking Of, features local creatives from various disciplines, such as music, comedy, and visual art. Today, we'll hear from the artist Ren Dillard, plus a novel artistic approach to raising money for primate conservation from Megafauna Studios and Ellock, an orangutan who creates NFTs. First, everyone, everything has a song, and tying it all together is the larger song. Song of the Horseman is a recent novel by Mark Warren. The novel won recognition as finalist in the literary fiction category of the Georgia Author of the Year Awards for 2022. Mark Warren joins me now via Zoom. Welcome back to City Lights. Thank you, it's great to be with you again. The novel is structured in alternating sections by two different characters nearly 50 years apart. Would you please tell us about each of their stories? The book is a parallel telling of two lives, a grandfather and a grandson. The grandfather, whose name is Jonas Walks Through the Storm, is a full-blooded Cherokee living in the 1940s and he has a reputation as an extraordinary trainer of horses, what people today would call a horse whisperer. The grandson, his name is Russell Storms, his last name being abbreviated from his grandfather's longer name. And he's a school teacher in Chicago. He's one quarter Cherokee. And he's uh, immersed in some of the racist uh, problems in public school in the 1990s and is dealing with that. And little does the populace there know that the real minority race at that school is his, Cherokee. He has burned out as a teacher and really fallen from grace in almost every area of his life, including his marriage and his health his habits. And we follow these two in different time periods so that we can get an idea of how these individual lives run on their own. But there's a weaving together that happens 
because the younger man goes in search of some rescue of his self-esteem. And he does that by readdressing his place as a Native American. You mentioned Russell is burnt out as a teacher, but we see flashes of what made him great initially. How did he use Richard Adams' novel Watership Down in his history classes? Well, you know, I remember when I was in college in the 60s, Watership Down was used in political science classes and economics classes as required reading because it's a study of different types of governments. Uh, For people who are not familiar with Mr. Adams' book, it's a story of rabbits, believe it or not. And it follows some rabbits who are really on an exodus away from disaster where their their homeland habitat is being destroyed by development. They are in search of the so-called promised land. And on the way, they encounter these adventures and and these different uh, rabbit clans that portray different types of governments. So it, uh, it's not a stretch at all to talk about it as part of a school agenda. How did Russell spend his 40th birthday? Russell decided to explore the idea of ritual. He didn't have a guidebook of any kind. He didn't really know how it was going to go. He just knew he needed a change, a transformation. He needed to find something of what he remembered from his early childhood when he did spend time with his grandfather, but he knew nothing about his grandfather except the man's love for horses. And Russell got to engage in horseback with his grandfather as a very young child. So he went off on his own, driving from Chicago, just in search of anything that looked like remoteness. And that was, of course, going to include some forest. And he had the idea originally that he wanted a place similar to what uh, a Plains Native American would seek out for a vision quest, a place that would have a, usually a grand vista to, to ponder during the, the vision quest itself. But Russell's forest led him to something even more appealing. And uh, I won't give away what that is, but he entered into an area of the forest and created his own type of ritual that would help him to, in a way, step through a new doorway to rediscover something about his native traditional past. And that leads to healing. It leads to self-discovery and more. Beginning with its title, musical imagery is abundant in this novel. First, would you tell us about the horseman's chant? Well, first I'll say that music is... uh, something that's been very important to me. I've been a composer since I was 14. I'm 75 now, so I've had hundreds of pieces of music uh, compiled in my books. And and by the way, one of those I wrote for Watership Down and sent it it to Richard Adams, and he received it and wrote back. And we had a little interchange that way, which was a most satisfying feeling for me. So uh, I'm very, uh, music's very, very much at the surface of my skin and a part of me. And the image of the song of the horseman is, it really begins with uh, the old Cherokee creation story of a giant turtle surfacing from the bottom of an ocean. And that turtle providing the first beginnings of land for 
for uh, wildlife and humans to live on. And the turtle song is, of course, the song of all creation, but each person has his or her own song. And that's merely a, a metaphor for my respect for individualism. I'm a strong believer in a person's individuality, their uniqueness. In fact, in my work with children at my wilderness school, children being a part of that work and adults being another part, but with children especially, I love introducing a child to those aspects of nature that help to bring out that child's own approach to the intimacy with nature. And it's done in so many different ways. Each child seems to have his or her own path into that. And, you know, just providing the opening of that door to someone and watching that uniqueness blossom in a person is, is something that I, I really admire. And I wanted to stress that in this book as well, that each person has a song. What does Jonas tell the six-year-old Russell about how he'll know when he has become a man. Well, he'll uh, he'll recognize his own song by that time. It will be something that he knows in his heart. It's not something that he'll be able to do, or it's not something that he'll see. His heart will tell him. So ultimately, singing for Jonas is a ceremony. Yes, it can be. Yes, singing singing one's own song is basically the idea of being true to your path. And what that means is the, you know, the classic phrase of follow your passion. When one does that, one's song comes into full voice. Before we talk about Jonas's relationship with horses, I wanted to point out a line that especially resonated with me. The character Pete says, a horse with a man on its back for the first time has got to be filled with insult. I, I remember seeing Peter Schaffer's play Equus many years ago, and I think that really impressed on me. The horse's point of view in this relationship with humans, what does Jonas hear from the horses? I think Jonas has that gift of empathy. You know, what you just said about your experience in seeing that play, the first thought that came into my mind as you were describing your feelings was when I was a boy watching Westerns on TV, my eyes mostly stayed on the horses. If it was a wagon train pulling wagons across, and I'm sure the producers wanted all eyes on the actors but my eyes were on the horses. I've always thought of them as being the true heroes of our westward expansion. And can you just imagine what it did for the native people who lived in the plains? And to them, the plains just seemed like an unending landscape. And when they learned that they could leap up onto the back of a horse and have that, it was, it was basically like flying. It was like the first time that humans flew and they could move across to boundaries that they'd never seen before. So it was a life-changing event. It was a culture-changing event, of course. Jonas just has that 
that magical empathy to understand horses. He's been around them so long. But the beauty of his approach is that he works with the horse and not against it. He's not trying to conquer it. It's the typical Native American approach to nature, really. Whereas the European approach was to conquer it and push it back, you know, to make a clearing in the forest. The Native person embraced it and appreciated what it was. Russell has dreams of wild horses circling him. And in spending Saturdays with his grandfather as a boy, he got to see Jonas's work, how he worked gentle miracles with the animals. Would you talk about how Jonas's treatment of horses is a metaphor for how he navigates humanity? Well, first, that dream of Russell's of swirling horses could easily be interpreted as turmoil and the troubles of his life. His grandfather exuded confidence, especially around horses, simply because he knew them so well. And when you're around someone who has supreme confidence, you are just automatically thrown into the role of student and mentor because you believe in that person's authenticity. So Russell was very fortunate indeed to have had that experience in his formative years so he could see an alternative way of being around animals. His own father, Russell's father, would not have had that. His, uh, his father had a very uh, estranged relationship from grandfather Jonas. So by leaping that generation and Russell having contact with his grandfather was one of the great gifts of his youth. Would you talk about the love stories within the Song of the Horseman? It seems that there are love stories on multiple levels. The familial love of grandfather and grandson we've talked about, a love for the land and all its inhabitants, and the love story of Jonas and Susanna. Can you talk about their love story? Yeah, first I'll mention one that I'd like to add to that list, uh, which was a good list, by the way. Thank especially you. That, especially that love of land. I want to also mention the love that Cuddy felt for Jonas. Cuddy was his training friend. And it was really through Cuddy that I was able to educate the reader about the character of Jonas. You know, in writing, there's a cardinal rule where you show instead of telling, meaning instead of saying somebody was happy, you describe their face without using that word happy, and then the reader knows that that person is happy. I was able to use Cuddy in that way to really magnify all those traits that Jonas had that were so admirable. And that's it's easy to believe because Cuddy is such a likable character, at least to me. Oh, yes. So we have a love for friendship. Right. The love with Susanna is probably right at the heart of the book. Here we've got a protagonist whom the reader has come to admire, 
would be my guess. And, and we have this, uh, we have a white woman who is the wife of a high officer at a military camp called T Camp Tukasiji. This all takes place in North Carolina. And the relationship that builds between them is for a time an unspoken one, but uh, one that is of great interest to the reader. Um, we see a woman who is trying to cut her strings a little bit from her prim and proper life as an officer's wife. And she recognizes the racism that exists between the whites and the native people. You know, back then that story of racism was a very important one. In fact, it wasn't until probably around, uh, I would say maybe 50, 40 years ago that many white families finally came to admit that they had native blood in their family uh, for a time that was all suppressed, just as it was with blacks. Uh, when white families would, when you would have, for example, a master uh, take advantage of a female slave or perhaps fall in love with a female slave and have a child, those things were hushed up. But Susanna is a, um, a very admirable person herself in that she stands strong. I think she provides a very good role model for women in this book. But it all leads to something that on the face of it, one could easily condemn one of the great sins of humankind. But as always, the truth of a story is the complicated parts of it have to be considered and this becomes, again, like you, Lois, I'm trying not to give away too much here. I really don't want to say what happens with them, but I believe that the reader will find it maybe by surprise that they, the reader finds him or herself on the side of wanting to see this woman go against the mores of her time. Yet there is nobility even in her rebellion because that love is pure. Um, I was struck by her telling, Susanna telling Jonas that what we have is like a song. Again, going back to the musical imagery. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes, and my guest is the author Mark Warren. We're discussing his novel, Song of the Horseman. So how do the two parallel stories of Russell and Jonas weave closer together and finally join, if you can tell us without that spoiler? Well, the two stories have the ability to contact one another simply by a journey that Russell takes. He wants to know more about his grandfather. He feels like that's the key to his understanding, his own tradition and family story. So he's physically moving along the path of where his grandfather went and talking to people who knew him and finding out what his life was about. Finally, it can come full circle, and I'm leaving a lot out here, and I'm doing that 
for a reason. You have to. But Russell eventually is going to return to the very roots of where Jonas lived, and he will accept that as his home. Your writing throughout is very poetic, and some of its most lyrical comes in your description of Western Carolina and the mountains themselves. This in contrast to the plains of Illinois. I, I can say this with intimate knowledge, having grown up in Chicago and thinking the prairie is not very beautiful, especially when we moved down here and, and I saw the beauty of hills and mountains so nearby. But, Mark, I wonder, did you ever live in Chicago and Illinois? Your familiarity with not only the terrain there, but also Wisconsin and little towns on the Mississippi, it seems pretty intimate. Well, I've traveled enough to see a great number of the ecosystems around the country. I'm basically in love with the geography of this country. I'm one of those people who, for some reason, I just don't feel drawn to go elsewhere to see the world. I, I feel like there's so much yet here that I want to see in America. But I did live in Cleveland, Ohio for a time when I was younger. And my great memory there is snow up to my shoulders just about all the time. But as far as North Carolina goes, I'm very close to North Carolina, living here in the North Georgia mountains. And I've often thought that North Carolina just might be heaven visually, at least Western North Carolina. Uh, the mountains uh, reached out to me long ago and, and brought me home. I've been in love with the mountains for most of my life. I actually didn't even know about them until I was 14. And then I immediately was smitten. But describing the, the coves and the water and the, the dark hemlock forest of North Georgia and North Carolina, to me, is just a great pleasure because that's what I think of as, as my environment. And I'm in love with it, and I live here by choice. Yes. I wondered, do you have Cherokee or tribal background? I have no Cherokee or native blood in me whatsoever. Some of the times when I have talked to Cherokee friends, I will, I will remind them of that during a conversation because it's a, it seems to be a, an appropriate thing to say at certain times, just as a reminder. And I love it when several times the person has looked back at me and said, oh, no, you are part Cherokee. And they, they tap their fingertips to their heart. That's a tremendous tribute. It's a compliment well taken. I, I love it. I remember when the novelist Tony Hillerman was made an honorary member of the Navajo Nation, again, having written about the Navajo people with profound respect, but not being an insider. You know, I wondered if today he might have been accused of cultural appropriation, but the Navajo Diné people didn't see it that way at all. 
Yeah, I've experienced something similar to that in my work. You know, I teach the skills of survival in these mountains here. And another way of saying that is I teach Cherokee skills. And there have been two times in my career, a career which has now spanned over a half century, in which uh, people have approached me uh, with a sense of indignation that I'm making my living off of the Cherokee's back. And I've never gotten that kind of reaction from a Cherokee, but it is something that it does happen. I, so I understand what happened there with Mr. Hillerman, but the beauty of what he's done and what I'm trying to do is to raise the awareness of these people. That's the way the Navajo saw it. And so I'm doing this as an educator. I'm not making any claims, just like Mr. Hillman did not. We don't pretend to be who we are not, but we, we certainly can write about what we admire. And by living in these forests, uh, that makes me feel closer to the Cherokee for being on their land. It, it literally is, in my mind, their land. We took it from them, just out of greed. Author Mark Warren. More information about his recent book, Song of the Horseman, is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, our series highlighting local visual artists speaking of art. Today features Ren Dillard, amplifying Atlanta. This is WABE. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. It's time now for our series, Speaking of Art, where we hear from local visual artists in their own words. Hi, my name is Ren Dillard, and my work is sort of a fine arts vision board about what the future would look like if humanity kind of figured it all out and, and came up with solutions um, to a lot of our, our problems. Um, a lot of people use the term Afrofuturism. I typically stay away or I'm a little bit leery of that phrase, but for common purposes, Afrofuturism is a look at the future through a black cultural lens. Um, it embodies 
technology, mysticism, spirituality, and it also kind of combines elements of our collective past and mashes them all together. So I'm really concerned with what the future would look like, and I try to create that on a, on panels and on canvases. You know, I've been a artist and a creative my entire life. I think Picasso said it best when he said that every child is an artist. The problem or the challenge is how to remain an artist once you become uh, an adult. My earliest childhood memory is connected to being a creative and, and being an artist. I remember drawing a bull or a ram or a goat or something like that on a phone book when I was really young. And I know I'm dating myself by saying phone book, but um, my mom's reaction to it was everything. You know, she showed it to like the neighbors and uh, my aunts. And so uh, she was super excited about it. And from that point on, I was an artist. I started off uh, with poetry and, and spoken word very early on and that kind of morphed into painting and, and doing collage and now I'm actually a curator and I write about art as well and I, and I love teaching uh, art to people and helping people to tap into their creative sides as well so I generally I think I've approached the creation of art with a pretty wide scope you know, I've always been curious about the internal nature of things. I remember when I was a little kid, finding out that we are that thing we see far, far, far down with our most powerful microscopes. And we also are the things we see far, far, far in the distant uh, cosmos with our most powerful telescopes. So I've never been as curious about going to heaven as I have been about how the heavens go. That brought me to like philosophy and um, arcane wisdom studies and teachings. And I try to incorporate and communicate as much of that stuff in my work as I can without getting too preachy. I think Atlanta, Georgia is at the steering wheel of the broader popular culture in the country right now. Atlanta is right now where New York was in the late 70s maybe the early 80s, where you have lots of super talented artists that are just sort of simmering and feeding off of each other and, and swapping ideas. And I think a lot of really good things are, are going to bubble to the surface. There's even a broader collector base, you know, as well, like a young collector base of, of people, uh, particularly black people with money um, who are interested in collecting art. And, and that's super exciting right now. There's no place else I'd rather be. At a glance, I love going to Mason Fine Art in Miami Circle. That's probably one of the best galleries in town. I mean, you can see great artists like Larry Walker, Charlie Palmer, uh, Tracy Morrell, many other talented artists. Um, my shameless plug, I have work in there as well. Um, I think the brother Donovan Johnson is doing a very fine job uh, taking over the Bill Lowe Gallery. Um, you can see great works by amazing artists like Thornton Dial and uh, Thomas Swanston. And I love all of the different art centers. That Those are places where you can really communicate more nuanced ideas, I think, and have a little bit more creative freedom. Arts Clayton comes to mind off the top, Southwest Art Center, uh, and even the Arts Exchange. 
you know, there are a lot of good things going on right now and in the upcoming months. I have exhibitions opening at Mason Fine Art uh, Center Gallery, Future Gallery. So there's a lot of really interesting things happening. Uh, you can reach out to me via my website at renswork.com. That's R-E-N-S-W-O-R-K dot com. Or you can reach out to me via Instagram or Facebook. So yeah, reach out to me. Uh, I'd love to hear from you. Artist Ren Dillard and our series, Speaking of Art. For the unfamiliar, our Speaking of series spotlights local creatives in various artistic disciplines, such as music, comedy, and visual art. Previous segments can be found on the website, wabe.org slash speaking of. Coming up, we'll hear about Ellock, the NFT-creating orangutan, whose artwork is raising money for primate conservation. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Primates can astonish us with their demonstration of abilities to engage in human-like endeavors. Coco the gorilla spoke in sign language. Gordo, a squirrel monkey, went into space in 1958. And now Elok, the orangutan who creates NFTs, the Atlanta-based Megafauna Studio partnered with an orangutan named Elok and zoologists at the Oklahoma City Zoo to present the world's first NFT collection created by a great ape. All sales of Elok's NFT artworks go to benefit orangutan conservation. Megafauna Studio founders Becky Scheel and Mathieu Kuhn join me now via Zoom to tell us more about their organization. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. Thanks so much for having us. Becky, I read that you first explored this idea of involving orangutans in creating digital artwork as part of your master's thesis at Georgia Tech, and you also worked with animals at Zoo Atlanta. What inspired this idea? Yeah, I, I worked at Zoo Atlanta for 10 years and was constantly amazed by all the animals at their care and noticed that they use painting a lot for enrichment, which I was really curious about. Some animals just kind of walk over the canvas and don't really seem to notice it, but great apes take a lot of care with it. And so do other animals, such as elephants, who I've also worked with in this space. So wanted to go back to grad school to kind of study more of this. And there's a fascinating trove of academic work being done here. 
looking at why do primates draw and it seems to be the same reason humans do enjoyment for <laughs> for the action of drawing or painting or creating so i was really intrigued by that especially as orangutans especially are not in the best shape prognosis in the wild so people that manage them in captivity are having to kind of look at ways to keep their bodies and minds active. So painting just seemed to be a really amazing process for that. This is so intriguing when you say uh, orangutans at Zoo Atlanta were already painting when you started working there. Do they have to be shown how to paint? How do you do does someone show them a brush and paper? How does that work? I, I'm not sure if I can answer how painting was first shown to them, but I will tell you with this project, it usually involves lots of positive behavior. Also, orangutans come from various backgrounds. Some were born in captivity. Others were reared by people and some even in the movie industry. So some of them have more familiarity with the culture of humans than others. So it really depends on what individual you're working with. You do show them with like positive behavior, uh, usually involving their favorite snack of some kind to show them something new. Matt, for those unfamiliar with NFTs, would you give us a brief description? Okay, so NFTs, in, in essence, are actually a non-fungible token, as most people know. And basically, it's just a smart contract stored on a blockchain. And in some cases like this, these NFTs are basically images stored on a blockchain. And that's, I mean, that's essentially what an NFT is. Okay. What is the definition or description of a blockchain? So a blockchain, like the blockchain we used, Ethereum, is basically a decentralized system which stores all information and data that goes in and out of it on the on the chain. Okay, that's helpful. How did the two of you connect and decide to merge Becky's design skills with Matt's tech savvy for this project? We both have a love for wildlife and are always excited to travel and go see zoos. And the zoo world is very uh, small. So we were visiting our friend in Oklahoma for their wedding where a bunch of my past coworkers from Zoo Atlanta now work. And we mentioned it, our idea, and, and they were like, that sounds great. And I wish all ideas and contracts were as easy as that. I guess you have to go to more weddings. <laughs> <laughs> But I think that certainly helped. And then uh, we kind of did a formal proposal and, and pitched our idea. Uh, pun intended or not? <laughs> of course intended. <laughs> <laughs> and why did you choose Alloc? His keepers kind of recommended him. He has a very interesting history where he was hand-reared because his mother couldn't care for him. And so he's very familiar with his keeper staff and has close ties to them and really appreciates human interaction um, where he can get it with his keepers and really loves painting, um, which we were able to witness. So he was the perfect artist to work with on this. 
You mentioned the positive reinforcement. If you could elaborate a little bit, how do you work with the zoologists to ensure that Ellock is happy to participate with his painting? Oh, for sure. Back to my thesis a little bit. It's really it's really hard to interview an orangutan for feedback. I do this all the time in my design job. But with an orangutan, we generally look at a few key indicators, which is attention and stay time. So how long are they interacting with something? Where does their attention go to? And then we also look at, are they exhibiting any behaviors which would ever cause us to stop? And that's why having a really a partnership with their care team that knows them well, who understands their moods, is really crucial to this type of work. So um, without pace, Alex main keeper at Oklahoma City Zoo, I, I think um, it really helped us understand through her eyes what, what he was experiencing. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes speaking with Becky Scheel and Mathieu Kuhn the co-founders of Megafauna Studio. Curious about the process in which Alec creates his digital artwork, what is the Connect system? It is it's simply like a motion tracking camera. Um, I used to play silly video games with my old roommate on it and dance. It's a really interesting tool because it's it's very affordable. I think I got mine for $10 and it's able to track all kinds of wonderful things as uh, skeletons and nearest point. For this work with Alec, we decided not to go too far off his normal painting process, uh, which is pretty cool. It's We uh, were able to witness it a few days beforehand where the keepers give Alec a PVC pipe. At the end, they fix a paintbrush and then a few meters back, the keeper will hold a canvas and then Alec is able to put the paintbrush on the canvas. And the reason they use this PVC extender is that orangutans are amazing creatures. They have this engineer-like curiosity and they will destroy that paintbrush. So to prevent that from happening and them eating a lot of paint, <laughs> they put it on this extender. How do you glean Alec's reaction to painting and creating digital art? He does it often and he seems to really enjoy it. And you can kind of track that by, is he present in it? Is he Because he has an option to leave. He can go anywhere in this exhibit, but when he sees it, he kind of approaches it. When I worked at Sioux Atlanta, I worked hand in hand with a keeper named Lynn and she would tell me, oh, the rings heard your voice this morning. So they lined up to where you usually work with them. Oh. Yeah, there is like this eagerness sometimes we see with working with a new and novel enrichment. Does Ella do things like switch colors? Does he have, uh, you know, favorite colors or shapes? That was the first question we asked. Um, there's this really fascinating study in science that looked at color preference in orangutans. And uh, Alex Keepers didn't say that he had a preference for color, but they did say he really loved bubbles. Huh. Uh, <laughs> we made warm-up applications for him too, including um, the more he moved the paintbrush, the more bubbles would appear just to try to kind of make this a personalized experience to his likes. Can you tell if he's having fun 
he will definitely tell you if he is done. Towards the end of the day, I think he put the papers down and that was it. But I think, you know, we were there over only two days and he came back to the application and was there for a few hours. So that shows based on research of stay time and attention, it showed that he was interested in it. And is there an average for how long it takes him to complete a painting? He's pretty quick. (laughs) (laughs) He's pretty quick. It was hard to keep up with him in some cases. So I think that was a challenge on our half of having to set up a new uh, digital canvas because he would just keep going. And we were also trying to create art with him. So he was pretty prolific. Becky, is he looking at the canvas? Is he looking at the shapes and the colors and the bubbles intently while he's creating, or is he just kind of swishing around the wand? Yeah, I mean, that was the question we we had. The first day, we were really curious to learn that. And at the time, we were just debugging the whole thing because we didn't have it uh, set up to calibrate with his space. And so we were really curious about that. But it, we did see him look at the screen, which I thought was <laughs> was the answer we always wanted. And it was the question that always gets asked about um, my previous work with apes. He was watching it. He had a funny behavior with me and, and Matt where he was really shy about making eye contact with us. Aww. So he would kind of look away. But he was looking at the screen. The extraordinary primatologist Jane Goodall worked with a gorilla named Coco, also known for making paintings, hers on canvases. Becky, did you draw inspiration from Coco's story and her artwork? Oh, I love Coco the gorilla. I was really debating whether working with gorillas or orangutans a long time ago because um, they're both so fascinating to work with. But there's a funny story (laughs) around that. Um, And why a lot of researchers work with orangutans over gorillas is because they're much easier to track their expressions. Their face is much more expressive than gorillas. I worked with a primatologist and she lovingly called gorillas snorillas when (laughs) working with them. I mean, we all love gorillas, but they're just harder to to track expression. And why did you want to expand upon Coco's story and her artwork? Why did you want to extend that into the digital realm? I think we were just really excited at the time. A lot of people were were donating towards orangutan causes in the crypto community at the time. And we thought, paired with my past work with Zoo Atlanta, there was a way to take that momentum and build a really lovely fundraiser around it. That would make a great connection to conservation. It would expand uh, people caring about animals and wildlife. And it would be novel. Not for nothing, this experience with enrichment is kind of extraordinary and new for the animals, too. So just seemed like a win-win. Matt, you specialize and consult in blockchain technology. Why do you believe cryptocurrency can bring about positive change? Because, honestly, it's the, it's the future. Much like the Internet, you know, a couple of decades ago, this is the future. It democratizes a lot of things and it gives back power to people instead of 
maybe governments and things like that, which is good or bad. And then, you know, NFTs in a, as an extension of this are truly like what what's what's coming next? How does it offer opportunities in ecological conservation? Well, this actually, interestingly, we chose to make our NFTs on Ethereum since the merge just happened, which was the switch of the Ethereum blockchain from proof of work to proof of stake, which reduced its energy consumption by 99.5%. Wow. So we felt, yeah, it's so this is, you know, it's a step in the right direction. These, like, these, these blockchains care about the environment. It just takes a while for them to become efficient. And, you know, they see the future, they understand this. And these NFTs not only open eyes towards conservation, but they also, you know, kind of show that these blockchains and cryptocurrency in general can be good and positive for humanity. Have either of you gotten any pushback about selling LX NFTs or your research in general? There are people who say that the, the energy consumption is quite high, but, you know, like just take it like two weeks ago, Ethereum just reduced their, their footprint by, you know, a thousand times. So, you know, to change the world, you have to use some energy, but also they're making steps in the right direction towards becoming more efficient. So, you know, it's, I feel like it's a good thing. What are some of the conservation projects, the Oklahoma City Zoo funds that help protect endangered orangutan habitats? They partner with a few organizations on the ground in Indonesia and Malaysia. And they also partner with Diane Fossey Gorilla Fund, which I know is gorillas, but they're also based in Atlanta. So I have to, <laughs> I have to be compelled to mention them. But they do a lot of efforts on making sure that the organization is viable, is doing amazing work. I think they're still deciding on which one to give the proceeds to. So I'm not sure. Mm. <laughs> we follow them on Twitter. So we're looking forward to them deciding on who the money goes to. How can people purchase LOX NFTs? So right now we have a few for sale on OpenSea.io, which is the biggest auction and sales place for NFTs. And you just search Alec under there or Alec Collection, and you'll find it. E-L-O-K is how That's he right. spells his name. It is. Will you extend this project to other zoos around the U.S.? We certainly hope so. I think it, the timing of this just worked out really well with Oklahoma City Zoo, and I think um, even extending it to different species and individuals would be a fascinating thing just from my view as a researcher of how these things end up. But yeah, I, I think it's a really interesting opportunity. And I think also to bring pushing enrichment forward and new technologies in that space is also equally exciting. Becky Shale and Mathieu Kuhn, co-founders of Megafauna Studio. More information about Megafauna and their Elok the Orangutan NFT collection is on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. 
tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll hear about Scrap Ladder Creative Reuse, a nonprofit focused on bringing new life to discarded art materials. Plus, Jonathan Goldstein of the award-winning podcast Heavyweight explains how he uses humor and heart to help listeners with unresolved dilemmas. If you missed part of today's show, like my earlier conversation with the author Mark Warren, you could catch up through our podcast or on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find a complete archive of our stories so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Droves. Our producers are Summer Evans and Janine Etter, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Do connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on both Facebook and Instagram. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. change from shifts in power to a mental health crisis so with all this social change how do we balance the human desire for empathy the business need for productivity and the hope to make an impact in our community this is a new podcast the social impact leader i'm jeff Barker. join me as we explore people doing work a little different available every wednesday at wabe.org forward slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts w-a-b-e Hey, y'all. I'm Mark Kendall. And I'm David Perdue. And we're the hosts of What's Good Atlanta, the new weekly comedy podcast from WABE. On What's Good Atlanta, we run down uplifting and unusual headlines from the universe known as Atlanta. And while we may not be journalists, we are comedians, and we'll be breaking down news and breaking down the stories that make you smile. We're just trying to see what's good, Atlanta. Episodes drop Fridays at WABE.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I get mine from a guy named Craig. Shout out to Craig. Mm -hmm. (laughs) W-A-B-E.